Great. Good morning. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name's Dave. I'm part of the church community here and part of the leadership team. And I'm going to speak a bit about that reading. So all of chapter, well, most of chapter 21 and a, a chunk of chapter 22 in Revelation. Um, but I wanted to start by just a brief recap of some of the things that Dan and Steve and Jill have said to us over the last few weeks about Revelation, just to set this in context, really. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but Revelation is quite a, a crazy book, isn't it? You read it, and it's got all sorts of imagery in it and symbols in it. And um, to be honest, as I came to sort of preparing for this talk, I'm not sure I fully understood all of that symbolism and how it works. Um, and so I think it is worth us just recapping, just to check that we're on the same page with that. There is loads of symbolism in Revelation, and it is just that. It's symbolism and not code. Um, so it's symbolism that means stuff and would have meant stuff to the people that read this book and heard it the first time. They would have understood the symbolism in this um, reading. And it's a bit lost to us, so we've got to do some harder work, really, to dig into the history to find out what it all means. Um, I think Dan told us in the first week that this book, um, there's a little bit of a debate out there on when it was written, but it could have been in 95 AD. If it was in 95 AD, it was during the Emperor Domitian's rule. It could have been written, and somebody like Tom Wright even thinks it might have been written slightly earlier in 65 AD, in which case you're looking at Nero's rule in the Roman Empire. But whatever, this book has definitely got loads of symbolism about the Roman Empire in it. Um, and it's also got loads of references to the Old Testament. There are only 400 and 405 verses in the entire book, but within those 405 verses, some people say there are 676 references to the Old Testament. So it's just littered with references to the Old Testament. So people reading this would have understood the symbolism about Rome and would have recognized some of the references to the Old Testament in a way that perhaps we sometimes lose some of that. Let me just give you a few examples of the sorts of things that people would have understood that maybe we've forgotten. And Dan and Jill and Steve talked about some of these things. But um, if it's in AD 95, it's in the time of Domitian's rule. He was the Roman emperor at the time. The Roman emperors talked about themselves as gods. Um, so I think Dan and, and Steve and others set this out a bit. that They talked about themselves as gods. Um, they had people worship them. Um, Domitian had a, a choir of people that wandered around singing songs about him. He made his wife call him Lord God. They sang songs that th said things like, Our God, our God, alone you are worthy of praise, honor, and power. Now that phrase you might recognize is actually written into Revelation in some of the earlier chapters. And the reason it's there is because John, the writer of the book, is doing this parody of the Roman Empire. He's saying, you're singing these songs to a guy who says he's God, but he's not God. I've seen something different. Last week, Jill talked to us about the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast sounds a bit scary, doesn't it? Um, unless you know what it means. And last week, Jill talked to us about the fact that the mark of the beast was to do with people being able to sell stuff in the Roman markets, in the Agora, um, particularly in Ephesus. If you wanted to be able to sell your stuff in the Roman market, you had to go and bow down to the emperor. You had to go and swear allegiance. You had to worship the emperor who was saying he was God. And to prove that you'd done that, you had to have a mark. And the Christians said, you're taking the mark of the beast. You're taking the mark of the Roman Empire. And the question that early Christians were asking is, Wait, are you going to take the mark of the beast? Are you going to take the mark of the Roman Empire? Or are you going to resist this? Are you going to stand up to a Rome where the emperor says he's God? Here's another set of bits of context which might help. Um, Domitian um, ran a load of 
games. He instituted some games, a bit like sort of early Olympics, I guess. Um, and Domitian at these games used to sit on a great big throne in the middle of the games and he'd get all the leaders of the provinces to come and stand in front of everybody. Um, Rob Bell does a good talk about this online if you, if you look it up. But um, he gets all the leaders of the Roman provinces into the stadium and it, to show his authority he talks about the leaders of the Roman provinces. And he says to this leader of this particular province, I have this stuff for you. I have this good stuff that I've noticed about you but I also hold this stuff against you. And then he says to this leader of the Roman province, I have this good stuff for you, but I also hold this stuff against you. And if you don't sort yourselves out, you're in trouble. Now, if you've read chapters two and three of Revelation, where John is talking to the churches, John uses that language. He says to the churches, I've got this good stuff for you, but I hold this stuff against you. And the early readers of this book would have understood that John was doing this parallel with Domitian and the Roman Empire. At those games, um, so Domitian's holding these games, and at the games he would have had his priests there. He often had 24 priests. His 24 priests were often dressed in white clothes. His 24 priests were often dressed in white clothes and had gold crowns on their head and would lead the worship. And if you've read some of Revelation, you'll see all that symbolism. John talks about people in white bowing down to this God sitting on a throne, And John is doing this massive parody of the Roman Empire, saying you're bowing down to somebody who says they're God, but they're not God. They're not the person to sit on the throne. There are statues of Domitian standing there holding a scroll in his hand. Roman emperors did this all the time. There are loads of statues of Roman emperors holding scrolls in their hand. And it was a big bit of symbolism to say the Roman emperor has got the names of all of the gods, all of the... Roman gods and all of the Roman Caesars who are God written on this scroll and I, Domitian, am the person that can unlock this for you and explain the meaning of the universe. And if you've read some of Revelation, you'll see there's loads of stuff about scrolls in Revelation. And John says, there's this guy who says he's got the scroll and he says he's the one that can unlock it. But there's nobody on earth that can unlock this scroll. And he says, I weep because there's nobody that can unlock the scroll, not the emperor. The only person that can unlock the scroll is Jesus. And so John's doing this parody of the Roman Empire. A couple more examples of context, and these are only just bits of examples, really. Um, And one bit of um, Revelations, it talks about the beast, and it's referring to the Roman Empire. And then it says the beast's number is 666. Have you read that bit? Um, And there's loads of scholarship out there, including Tom Wright, who says that this directly refers to Nero, one of the Roman emperors. They did this thing called numerology. Um, Numerology is the study of numbers, really. There are loads of numbers scattered throughout Revelation, and they all mean stuff. Um, They're all perfect numbers, and they're all square numbers, and they're all triangular numbers, and they're all things that have got deep symbolism. And numerology is about assigning numbers to letters. Um, And if you assign particular numbers to letters, you get 666, and it comes out as Nero. Scholars say that he's definitely referring to Nero when he's talking about 666 in the Bible. So there's just all of this context. It's dripping with context, which is talking about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the beast. The Roman Empire is the dragon. The Roman Empire, the person sitting on the throne are these emperors that say they're God and they're not God. It's almost as if, um, Rob Bell puts it like this, it's almost as if John in this book is saying, I've seen the throne of the universe and Domitian the emperor is not sitting on it. You've got it wrong. It's not that person. 
it's Jesus. It's somebody else sitting on the throne. And he says, therefore, don't bow down to this Roman Empire. This book is a real act of resistance, if you like, against the Roman Empire. Um, Tom Wright, um, if you go on YouTube, there's a really good um, Tom Wright lecture about Revelation. And he says, this is a book which is a bit of apocalyptic, it's called. Um, But he then goes on to say, but first and foremost, this is prophecy. This is prophecy. And remember, prophecy is not Mystic Meg looking into a magic ball and predicting the future. Prophecy is somebody crying out for a world that doesn't look right. John is crying out saying, I've seen the world. It looks different to this. It's not how it looks. The world is not as it should be. John's crying out and saying, I know the Roman Empire looks like this, but I've seen something different and better. It looks different. So Dan's suggestion is a really good one. If you read Revelation quite quickly, um, you can sort of read that into it without getting bogged down in all of the symbolism, if you like. This is all symbolism to describe a world that is not right and then a world that could look different. So Revelation 21 is set in that context. I guess there's pages and chapters before that which are the sort of railing against the Roman Empire and then 21 comes and it's the hope that John sees. It's the thing that he sees which is different, which is better, which is bigger, which is not the Roman Empire. Um, Have you ever come across the the terminology, I think we've talked about it here a bit, but um, thin places. Um, Celtic um, Christians and all different sort of religious sects in, in the Celtic world talked about thin places. Thin places are when you feel like heaven and earth are really close together. They can be sitting on a mountaintop and for a moment you experience something beyond the physicalness of the world. You can experience heaven in a deeper, meaningful way. It could be, you know, somebody at Stonehenge or it could be on a particular burial mound where you feel that experience. Um, I don't know about you, but I have experienced stuff like that in my life, I guess, as I sit somewhere beautiful and you suddenly experience something deeper than just your physical reality, if you like. Or maybe in a relationship with some people and you suddenly experience the world as it could be, as it should be, something really deep and meaningful. Or maybe as you listen to a piece of music, you can experience something beyond yourself, these thin places. And the reason I tell you that is because I think written into Revelation and I think written into the Bible, frankly, is this understanding that heaven and earth are intertwined, are interfolded, interweaved with each other, overlapping with each other. Heaven and earth are not heaven as a distinctly separate place to the physical earth that we live on. Um, Tom Wright puts it in that lecture that God's creation is a two-sided creation. It's two sides of the same coin, heaven and earth. They're closer than we think. They're here together. And these thin places are little moments of being able to tap into that nearness of heaven and earth. And in that passage we just read, it talks about Jerusalem coming down from heaven. It's talking about a renewal of the earth right here. Jerusalem arrives here. It's not talking about us floating off to this mysterious heaven world somewhere in the sky. In fact, in that passage, it talks about Jerusalem coming down to earth. And there's that weird bit about somebody measuring it with um, a measuring stick. I don't know if you saw that bit. And it says it's a cube shape. It's, I can't remember how many was, something cubits this way and something um, tall and something wide. And it's a cube. 
And the reason it's a cube is because that is a symbol for the Holy of Holies. You know, in the Jewish temple structure, there were all the different sort of um, gates you could go in and you go, went into the next level and then into the next level and then right in the center of the Jewish temple was the Holy of Holies. And it was the place that only the high priest could go and only the high priest could go one day a year. And it was the place where you could meet God face to face. It was the place where heaven and earth came close together. And I think John is saying in this passage, Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. There is no temple anymore. All of it's the temple. All of it is heaven and earth weaved together, intertwined together. You don't need to go and find God in a special place. It's all here together. It's renewal right here on the earth, not floating off to heaven in the sky somewhere. So I guess that got me thinking, why have we got in our sort of Christianese, um, a sort of pop, um, eschatology is the word, like our understanding of the end, the end goal, the end game in the Bible. Why, I think I've got this a bit, but I think it's sort of ingrained into all of us that regardless of what we might rationally think about it, we've still got this sense that actually perhaps we're going to float off to heaven at some point and it's a quite different place. Where does all of that come from? It gets written into our songs and we're about to sing away in a manger, I guess, during Advent. One of the lines is, fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Or there's a final verse of Amazing Grace, which um, people stop singing. Actually, it's come back into more modern versions of Amazing Grace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Or in the hymn, love divine or love excelling, till in heaven we take our place. Into our songs is written this sense of we're going to disappear off to heaven and take our place somewhere else. Where does that come from? I'd put it to you that that comes more from Greek philosophy than it does from things written into the Bible. Um, There's a guy called Plato, really famous Greek philosopher, who had this understanding of people and creation, this dualistic understanding, two understandings. You had an immortal, rational soul, that would go on forever and ever. And you had your temporary corruptible body which would perish. And he thought the same thing about the cosmos of the creation, that there, was, there were thoughts and there were ideas which were um, transcendent and would go on forever. And then there was the earth which was corruptible and was transitory and it would eventually die away. And Plato's understanding was actually that the... The goal really was to get from your immortal soul to, to leave the corruptible transitory stuff and live in a sort of higher plane, live in a higher reality. So you can see creeping into Plato's idea there, the idea that somehow we need to float off to somewhere else. Um, the early Christians wouldn't have loved that idea because Plato was almost making the rational soul the be-all and end-all. It was almost making God the rational soul, if you like, and Christians probably wouldn't have liked that. It was almost deifying rationality. Um, But that sort of got kicked along a bit by other Greek philosophers. And then this guy called, I don't know how you say this, Plotimus, Plotimus, P-L-O-T-I-M-U-S, who actually took it a step further and said, I'm going to take what Plato's thought, but actually there's something deeper than your um, rational, immortal soul. There's something that he says... um, that is above and deeper within the rational mind. And it's a super rational mind, or he calls it nous, N-O-U-S. And Christians would have said, yeah, there is, that's the spirit. 
And then he said there's something deeper than that, something further within than that, the one, the unitary fullness and depth of being which, from which all reality flows. And Christians would have said, yeah, that could be God the Father. And so Protimus gave Plato a bit of a twist and allowed everybody to think, yeah, actually, this floating off to a different realm is, is possible and is, is what we're going for. And so Plato passed that on to Protimus, passed it on to Augustine. It gets written into Christian theology that actually the end goal is that we, the eschatology, the end game is that we float off to somewhere else, to a different paradigm. And actually, I don't think Revelation is saying that at all. Um, I read this great book um, about the new heaven and new earth by a guy called Richard Middleton. And this is a quote. I'm not sure it's from him, actually. But um, the quote says, The Christian hope has constantly been understood as a hope for human fulfillment in another world, in heaven, rather than as a hope for the eternal future of this world in which we live. And just a a little side note to all of this. Um, You'll have seen in that passage, in, in verses 1 to 4, it talks about the old earth passing away and the new one arriving. You could read that, I guess, as the old earth gets obliterated and we just start afresh with something new. I don't think it means that either. And, and scholars have sort of looked into this. And the two things. One is it says renewed, not new. And secondly, the passing away. They've looked at what passing away in other bits of the Bible and what that means. And so Paul uses it when he's talking about um, people being baptized and being born again. And he says the old passes away and you've got the new um, rebirth. But Paul's not talking about the obliteration of somebody and then a new doppelganger standing in their place that's completely different. Paul is talking about radical transformation. Paul is talking about radical renewal. And so people think, when you read Revelation, that's also what John's talking about. He's talking about radical transformation of the earth as we know it, radical renewal of the heaven and earth, not obliterate and start again fresh. So the first point is that. That the renewal is right here. It's not floating off to somewhere else. What's written into Revelation is a story of stuff happening here. Here will be change renewed. Heaven and earth will come together. There'll be no need for a temple. Second point is the bit about garden to a city. Um, So my talk's actually called Garden to a City. And um, in Genesis, you see that fantastic in Genesis 1 and 2, I guess, but 2, um, the idea of the Garden Garden of Eden. And so the Bible starts in the place of the Garden of Eden, and it's this paradise, isn't it? And then in Revelation, we see right at the end of the Bible, the Bible ending with a city descending from heaven. So what's that all about? Well, I think it could be tempting for us to think that the purpose of life The end game, the eschatology, the end goal is that we're trying to get back to the garden. We're trying to get back to that perfection that God laid out at the beginning. But again, I don't think that's really what the Bible's saying. So in Genesis, immediately, you get the Garden of Eden, but you get God talking to humans about cultivating the land. In Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. It was the first cultural project that God was actually encouraging. In Genesis chapter 4, it talks about the first city. It talks about agriculture the whole way through. It talks about animal husbandry the whole way through. There's a sense in which God is saying creation is good. In fact, creation is very good. But it's not perfect, and it can be even better. And he's encouraging humanity to be involved in that job of making creation even better. We shouldn't despise 
progress. We shouldn't despise the city because actually written into Genesis is this idea that progress and creation and creativity is actually the heart of what God is asking us to join in with. That's really different to um, creation stories of the Near East. So Steve's talked to us before about the Babylonian creation story, uh, Enuma Elish. Um, And in those sorts of stories, God gives power to the king. Only the king is made in the image of God. And actually human beings are just there to maintain stuff, to keep stuff the same as it was, to make sure that things remain as God initially instituted them. That's not the creation story written into Genesis. Creation story written into Genesis has got cultural development written into it. It's got all humans are made in the image of God and we're to go on a journey of development and progress with God in the image of God. Genesis envisions a basis for human life, a basis that's got culture written into it, technology written into it, civilization written into it. We're not meant to just be hunter-gatherers. We're supposed to progress from there in the image of God. Here are two great quotes from that book that I read. Um, It says, the goal, it seems to me, isn't simply to return to the garden, nor is it to forget the garden and anticipate the world's soon destruction so that we can be beamed up to heaven. It's a best of both scenario, a garden city. And he goes on to say, I don't think that shifting from the garden to field to city to civilization needs to be a move away from God. But there are new spiritual skills, responsibilities and qualities that we need to develop the further we move away from the land. So if we're made in the image of God and we're supposed to progress and we're supposed to change and improve creation, not all progress is good progress, is it? Um, We've got to progress but in the image of God. And what is the image of God? And here's a snapshot. This is not everything in any way, shape or form. But the creation story is non-violent as opposed to lots of the Near East creation stories, which are super violent. The creation story is developmental. It's saying progress. You're supposed to progress. The creation story is radically generous, and we find later in the Bible, radically generous means as far as love your enemies. The creation story says use what you've got for the sake of creation. Um, In Revelation 18, there's a whole bit about money, sex, and power, and using those terribly. And... Yet, those are not bad things. We've just got to use them in an image of God-like way. The creation story says you can't affirm humanity from a distance. You've got to move in. You've got to step in. You can't live in splendid rural isolation. And the creation story says God gives power to others. He doesn't hoard his power in this sort of sovereign box somewhere. He gives it out to all of humanity and says, you're part of this with me as image bearers of God. I think that's really profound, that giving power away bit. Um, A couple of weeks ago, um, we had in Oasis um, our regional conference, and so we had one in Birmingham, um, where all of our teachers and all of our community leaders came together, and uh, loads of different people, about 400 people in a room, and there were some people from some of our hubs, so we run other hubs around the country as Oasis, like here in Waterloo, and there were some people from some of our other hubs, some women from the community, um, that came and stood out front and just talked about their experience of being part of a hub. Um, And they talked with real pride about their community. They talked about how 
they'd changed their community, how they'd taken power, how they'd transformed their community. They talked about how they were now the people giving benefits advice out, how they were now the people um, helping people get into safe housing. They talked about how they ran the youth club. They talked about how they were the leaders of their community. And you felt in that moment, that was a, a thin place for me, where there was this sense of power isn't invested in one person, isn't just invested in God, it's, it's with all of us because we bear the image of God. And in that moment, you could see that giving away power is a, um, you know, a real godly image-bearing thing to do. So first point was that the renewal is right here. Second point is that we shouldn't despise progress. We've just got to do progress well, progress that looks like the image of God. It was always the plan in Genesis. And I think there's something really great about that. Um, Genesis was always saying, you've got to work together as human beings. You're part of my plan. You're as much part of the creation story as God is. So what's John suggesting to us, and what was he suggesting to the early readers in this book? I think here's four things, loads of stuff, but... I think John's suggesting that it's our job as the church, it's our job to bear witness to a world that isn't the way it should be. So sometimes progress hasn't happened the way it should, and it's our job to say, actually, the world shouldn't look like that. There's something better and bigger and newer and much more exciting than it should look like. I think we've got to be prophetic in the way that John was prophetic and say the world shouldn't look like this. It's supposed to look different. And I think we just need to be slightly careful in that. that Our job isn't to damn the world or to damn the things that are wrong. Our job is to help transform and renew and to work alongside people to do that. Secondly, I think John is saying that although the final renewal, this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, isn't here yet, if it is about renewal here, we've got a job that we can get involved in now. It's called inaugurated eschatology, that. So it's the end time stuff, but it means we can do it now as well. The final picture hasn't come. The final end game isn't here. But we can get on and be part of the job right now if we want to. I think John's also suggesting to us that we can be an example of restored humanity right now. We can be an example to the world around us of what restored humanity could look like. And I think this is a really hard fourth one. I think John is sort of saying this idea that the the battle is already won that he's saying this picture of Jerusalem coming out of heaven is what's going to happen. Now that means that even if it doesn't look like it today to us right now, even if it's painful for us to stand up for justice right now, it's still the best thing to do because that's what it's going to look like. I think he's sort of saying, what other choice is there? You may as well do that because this is what's coming. So finally, from me, what does this mean practically? And then we're going to take communion in a minute, and you might want to use it as a chance to think practically about what this means for us as a community and individually. I think renewal is right here. It's not us disappearing off to a heaven somewhere else. Renewal is coming here. Secondly, I think progress is good, but progress has got to be progress in the image of God. So if North Lambeth is going to be a renewed garden city, if London is going to be a renewed garden city, what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for the people that we're friends with in this community? What does that mean for the way we spend our money? Am I investing in that big story that's coming, or am I investing in something else? What does it mean for the things we volunteer at and get involved in? Am I getting involved in 
the big picture that's coming or am I getting involved in other stuff? What does it mean for the support we give people? What does it mean for the power we share with other people? If God shares his power generously, how do we share our power generously? I think ultimately our job as the church is to be a foretaste of that garden city that's coming. I think Jill said this last week, but we're supposed to punch holes in the darkness until it bleeds right now. And I think we're supposed to demonstrate to a hurting world that all the tears are going to be wiped away. So I'm going to stop there, and Dan is going to lead us in communion, I think.